Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Holy Spirit, would you open the word? Would you open our hearts to the word? Lord, we're not just, we don't, we don't want to be informed. We want your, your word to cut us like a two-edged sword. We want you to just heal us and give us faith and open us up and draw us forward. Lord, we want, we want the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We want all that you have for us. We really mean it. May the word speak to us, draw us forward. Speak to me, Lord, and I pray that I'll be faithful and let your word come. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we will start by reading. I'm going to start at verse 4 so that you have a sense of the perspective there. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, and we'll read up through verse 14. And verse 14 is the verse we're really going to look at carefully. All right, verse 4. Gathering them together... Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. What were they supposed to wait for? The Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. I've been talking about it, he said. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now they're up on the on Mount of Olives when this kind of this conversation's happening. And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons, times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, is what he says, the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem, from the mount called Olivet, Olive Grove, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were devoting themselves to prayer along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Would you read the first part of that? These all with one mind. These all with one mind, let's go on, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Did you see that? When God promises us something, he's revealing his heart. He's showing us what he wants to do in our lives, but that doesn't necessarily mean it will actually take place. Did you hear me? I mean, that's, 
When God promises us something, he's revealing his heart. He's showing us what he wants to do in our lives, but that doesn't necessarily mean it will actually take place. I'm speaking that into a culture, the American culture, which is steeped in determinism. The idea that God will do what God will do. God is in control. Sounds fun. Sounds nice to say. Sounds worshipful. God's in control of everything. And what did I just say? God can have a, pl- have a will for you. God can have a gift for you. God can give you, offer you something, and it won't happen. Well, if God's in control, how does that work? What's the deal? You, you got to, you've got to allow now. You've got to allow yourself to come out of that kind of determinism thinking that God's just, everything's going to happen, it's going to happen. Come out of that. Come out of that. Listen to this. He's showing us what he wants to do in our lives, but that doesn't necessarily mean it will actually take place. When God gives us something, it's ours. But that doesn't necessarily mean we will actually receive it. There are forces within and without that can prevent us from receiving what God has given us. Not understanding this fact causes a lot of confusion. There are many people who've received prophetic promises, which apparently didn't come true. Of course, it's possible some of these were produced by wishful thinking rather than divine inspiration. So in some cases, the word itself wasn't authentic. But there are also clear biblical promises concerning God's will for all of us that never seem to take place. And there's not one simple answer as to why. But the reason many of us go so long without receiving is that we haven't learned to wait. The problem is we think think waiting is, well, waiting. Just waiting. Which is to say, going on with life while keeping one eye open to see if God actually comes through on what he said. That sound like waiting to you? Going through life keeping one eye open to just see if God actually does what he said he's going to do. After all, he knows where we live. So when he decides to do it, he will, right? But surprisingly, that's not true. There's much more to waiting on God than than that. Promises and blessings have to be pursued, fought for, held on to. Often our own hearts have to have to be changed before we can receive. Some might hear this as trying to force God to do something he doesn't want to do. As disrespectful as though such aggression is trying to push God to do something he doesn't want to do. But that's where the confusion lies. This kind of waiting isn't presumption. It's faith. It doesn't offend him. It pleases him. He loves it when his children hear him promise something. And won't be denied. He loves it when we lay hold of him. And won't let go. He loves it when we set aside the distractions of the world. And wait till he shows up. Just like the disciples waited for Pentecost. When the angels finished speaking. The disciples immediately began to worship Jesus. Undoubtedly they must have fallen on their faces. And poured out praise. Declaring him to be their promised Messiah. And now, their ascended Lord. Over the past 40 days, when Jesus met with them, he had reminded them of of key passages in the Old Testament, which prophetically speak of him. 
now with his words fresh in their minds. They must have freely quoted from these as they worshipped. Once this burst of amazement and heartfelt thanks subsided, they turned and went back down the mountain into the city, filled with great joy. In his gospel, Luke tells us that after the ascension, the disciples were continually in the temple, blessing God. But here in Acts, we're told they entered the city and went up into the upper room where they were staying. This upper room would have been a chamber built on the flat roof of a house. Putting these two pieces of information together, a picture emerges of that 10-day period between the Ascension and Pentecost. The 11 apostles, who Luke lists in this verse, were sleeping overnight in that upper chamber. Then, during the day, others must have joined them there for corporate prayer, but clearly part of each day must also have been spent in larger gatherings at the temple. These would have met in the large outer courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles, and undoubtedly they would have taken cover from the sun under the large colonnaded structure on the south side called the Portico of Solomon or the Royal Stoa. Many groups gathered in this large covered area, and it also held a bazaar where items for worship were sold. Do you have the picture? They come back down the mountain, they come into the city, and it says they went up into the upper room. A lot of those houses had these. This is a large one. They have flat roofs and you know, strong uh, posts that hold the roof, so they, they put a, a chamber up on the top of this thing. I don't know, it would be tent or walls. I don't know how, how firm it was, but they would make a room up there. And this is a big room. Apparently, you can get 100 people in the thing, so it's, it's not, a, not a small space. The disciples were staying there. They were, this is where they lived. They stayed, the men, up there, in that, up there in that room. During the day, they would go to the temple. I mentioned this big colonnaded area. It's a big shaded area. They have all kinds of rabbis and their students. You've got uh, shop sellers selling religious things for the temple. You've got all this busy, noisy stuff going on. And they would gather there. It's a huge area. They would gather there and they would, they would worship. They are pressing in. They are waiting for God. He's promised them something. But I want you to see how they wait. I want you to see they didn't just hang around Jerusalem, you know, and see what he'd do. When you wait for a promise, it's, a, it's something you go after. It's, there's something you and I, a part we have to play in it. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Jesus told his disciples to wait for what the Father had promised. And he told them what their assignment would be. But for now, they weren't to go anywhere. Not yet. Something had to happen first. Now they were to go back into the city and wait, and they did. Thankfully, in this verse, Luke gives us a brief but carefully worded description of what happened during those 10 days. He says, quote, all of these were continually giving their attention to prayer with one mind. That's a literal translation. There are at least four elements to observe here. First of all, all of these 
They waited as a community. They didn't scatter and find a lonely rock somewhere and sit. Now, wouldn't, wouldn't we do that? <laughs> I want you to wait. Okay. You know, and you go find someplace with a nice view. Oh, you're off by yourself, you know, getting morose, throwing rocks and rivers and stuff. That's what we do. They did not. Please notice, this is important. They came together. They waited together. They did not go off by themselves and scatter. They came together. They gathered daily. Men and women. Not just the 11. But also, it says, the women. Which undoubtedly included Salome, Mary's sister. That's Jesus' aunt. Mary, the wife of Clopas, that's also his aunt, but it's Joseph's brother. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and John. Imagine that woman. She had to raise the sons of thunder. You know, what kind of boys were they? John Mark's mother, that's her home they're on the roof of, so you know they let her in. And very possibly Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, it says. Flip back with me to Luke 8. I want you to see something that gets overlooked a lot. Luke 8, verse 1. There were women disciples all through the process. And and we forget this. Listen to Luke here. Luke 8, verse 1. Soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another. Proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and look at the next line, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Did you hear what he just said? You've got a bunch of women who are helping financially support the ministry. That's what you just heard. The Herod he's referring to, this is Herod Antipas. He's the king in the whole northern region, which, by the way, is located about three miles from Nazareth. If you go to Israel with us, we will go there to, the, to this town of Sepphoris. This was this, this whole city, beautiful thing. You've got these fabulous mosaics and stuff that Herod built there. Jesus lived in a little worker village of about 600 people. But it's only three miles from a major construction situation in which huge stadiums, buildings, the whole thing are being built by Herod Antipas. You know Joseph and Jesus walked that trail in the mornings with their lunch and went to work in Sepphoris. The treasurer of the king his wife is a disciple of Jesus she's traveling with them I don't know who Susanna is but she's there's another notable person and you've got you've got the you've got a whole group of women so where they went you would have you had also an, a group of women disciples now I imagine they I'm sure they stayed apart to some degree I don't know how this all worked but you got his mom, you've got two, his, two of his aunts. I mean, talk about a chaperone. You do, you've got mom right over there. 
You, you've got his two aunts, Salome and Mary. Notice everybody's named Mary. Did you notice that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the name would be for a modern name today uh, that everybody has for their daughters. But boy, that was a man. It means Miriam means bitterness. So I never have figured it out. I have. I've, I've, but uh, they are named after Mary, Mary, Miriam, of course, um, Moses' um, sister. So here you have, you've got in this group, I want you to see it. It's men and women that are, that are in this process. Men and women in this upper room and in the temple, now not staying overnight. The disciples stayed overnight there. But everyone would gather in the mornings. And then the temple isn't open all day. Did you know that? I don't know that I fully realized that. There's office hours for the temple, seriously. It's from nine in the morning when you have the... Uh, the morning sacrifice. It took 20 men to open the huge door of the temple. They open this thing. And then they, there's trumpets that are blown, these silver trumpets. And they offer the morning sacrifice, and the temple's open for business. You can come in. And then the evening sacrifice is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Again, the whole thing, and they have singers and everything else in the evening. And they offer it, and the temple door is closed. So you've got a lot of time. So their, their time is split between upper room and in the temple area of um, the colonnaded thing in the port with, where Gentiles can be, where women can be, everybody can be in this whole gathered thing under that royal stoa, under the portico of Solomon. So we often overlooked the fact that there were women disciples who traveled with Jesus and his, and his disciples. Luke also mentions Jesus' mother and his brothers, who obviously had a change of heart when they saw their eldest brother resurrected. If you go back into the Gospels, I give you the references there, you can look them up. They did not believe in their brother. They made, they made rude remarks about him. They considered him a, 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 a religious Crazy. They came to take him away at one point. The family was outside waiting to take him away, thinking he lost his mind. I mean, so this was his brothers. But boy, when you see your brother resurrected, your mom, your aunts, everybody, if you weren't there, your, your, your two aunts and your mom and, and everybody you know was there watching this happen, watching the Roman sword go into his side, and then there he stands looking really, really healthy <laughs> with scars still on him. I mean, that will change your attitude. And it did them. The word which is translated here as women can, be, can also mean wife. It's the same word used in just the context. Since we know some, maybe all the disciples were married, there may have been some wives present as well. By the way, one reliable, pretty good translation of this, or pretty good manuscript of this, adds this statement, and children. Now, why would I have any reason to think there might have been children present? Think about the book of Acts. Think of Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you and your... Huh, he makes reference to it. And it's kind of odd when you do. I think, there's, I think there's children there too. You know, we often think it's just 11 guys up there in a room. You know, it's kind of a fresco painting. <laughs> Everybody, 
It's not that at all. You've got a hundred people at least. You've got men and women. You may have children present. You've got people pressing in. This is, this is a, a, a real community of people. Next statement. Continually giving their attention to. They set aside other things and focused on God. The word Luke uses means they were strong towards. It implies consistent attention and the expenditure of energy. In other words, they weren't passive. They were actively calling on God to do all that he promised. Now, undoubtedly during the process, each one gave attention to his his or her own spiritual condition. They would have attended to any unconfessed sin, hidden resentments, wrong attitudes toward God. Their goal was to prepare the way of the Lord. The word Luke uses literally means the same mind. It's used 10 times in the book of Acts. And I give you those references just because if you want to get a sense of what does this mean to be in unity, read those things. And you'll just see over and over again that whole sense of what it meant to be of one mind. Paul used it in Romans 15, 6. We saw it when we went by. It means to genuinely agree as to your purpose and to work together as one. These disciples refused to withhold themselves from the body of Christ. I'm going to nail that one again. These disciples refused to withhold themselves from the body of Christ. They were not just individuals. They loved each other and gathered harmoniously, joyfully, pursuing the Lord as a team, not as isolated individuals. And then fourthly, in prayer. How do you pray for 10 days? What do you say? One can say all the appropriate things that need to be said in 10 minutes. Then what? We know they went to the temple each day to worship. They were blessing God, Luke says. But to pray that long takes quiet listening, reading the word, or listening to it being read or recited. You say, well, they didn't have Bibles. Hey, they memorized the Bible. Any Jewish boy to be bar mitzvahed had to memorize the Torah, the first five books. Have you ever been to, I've been to a bar mitzvah. And you, this, this kid, he's what, he's 12, 13? He stands up there in front of the elders. I went in an Orthodox one, man. I got the women, Mary's over on the other side. We're, the men were over here. And this boy's up there. And the elders are asking him questions like this. And he has to quote whatever passage they, they may on the spot. And could do it. And could do it. I, I, just was, uh, I just read about somebody the other day had memorized the entire book of Psalms. All of them. Could just recite them like that. I mean, people, that's a modern person. People can still do this. So you say, well, they didn't have a Bible. They didn't need a Bible. They had ra- random access memory. I mean, they, they <laughs> somebody just start going and they'd give you a chapter or two at a shot. So, I mean, they had the word. They had the, you got to understand that these are Jews. They got the word. But to pray that that long takes quiet listening, reading the word, praying specific things as as the spirit leads, 
When numerous people listen together in unity and pray out as God guides, a theme emerges and is prayed for in remarkably insightful ways. And then another theme emerges and is is prayed for as different people since God give them something specific to pray. Have you ever been in that kind of prayer meeting? The Lord begins to guide, something comes up, you begin, and you can, the thing begins to move. And it has a theme, it has a purpose. I mean, you can literally feel the mind of God guiding the people and praying through them. That's what they're doing. Rather than being chaotic or dull, such spirit-led prayer becomes very inspiring and, is, and time passes unnoticed. Undoubtedly, God led them to pray for their city, their families, their nation. Undoubtedly, they declared by faith the great things God would do. Doors would open, souls would be saved, the oppressed would be delivered, the sick would be healed. After all, they had watched Jesus minister and he had actually sent them out at times to minister in his name. So what lay ahead wasn't a mystery to them. They knew they would soon say, and would you say that? Let's read this out loud. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. These these disciples have been watching him heal cast out devils. They have been empowered to heal and cast out devils already. We're not even to Pentecost yet. They'd been sent out. They came back rejoicing. Remember this? Well, they'd run into some hard ones and then they have questions, but he'd already sent them out two by twos. It says in one place, he sent them out to cities where he was to come. In other words, they would start a ministry. A crowd would gather. The whole thing's rolling and Jesus walks in and takes over. That's how he would do, I think, two to three cities a day. There were millions of people in the Galilee at that time. And it said he went to every city and village. He moved. This was a happening. This is an event. It's not, you know, 12 guys and Jesus strolling down a road into the sunset. These pictures are just terrible. He's, He's raising the dead, folks. He's healing everybody that comes to him. Do you think there was a crowd? Would you go? If you knew the guy was over in Auburn and he was raising the dead and people were getting healed, every one of them that came, would you go? Would you take grandma and say, come on, we're going to get you healed? Wouldn't you? They did too. They did too. This is why they were afraid to even touch Jesus. He was so popular. That's why they arrested him in the middle of the night and did that whole disgusting thing. Didn't Jesus say, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So much faith-filled thanking of God for what he was about to do must have filled that upper room and the portico of Solomon. And when over a hundred disciples are doing this together, people take notice. By the time God's appointed day arrived, the Spirit was already mightily at work. Now, I'm going to show you something, and I'll see how much of the story I tell you. I think you know these stories, but they're hard to resist. They're so good. I I want you to see a principle. This is the heart of the principle. I'm going to show you two examples. I could show you lots of examples. 
I'm showing you two. I want to prove to you that just knowing the will of God is not enough. Having God tell you what he's going to do is not enough. That if you, you want to receive the will of God, you must reach out and there's, a, there's an action on our part. I'll show you. Here we go. 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to look at Elijah. 1 Kings. You get Samuel, it's to the right. Chapter 18, verse 41. Elijah, three and a half years before this, had been told by the Lord to go up to the king and say, by my word, there'll not be another drop of rain or dew on the ground for three and a half years. Now, nobody believed him. They laughed him out of town. And three and a half years later, they're not laughing. <laughs> not a drop of rain's fallen. No dews on the ground. The place is absolutely baked. He has, he has called together this event on Mount Carmel. We go to Mark Carmel, by the way. We stand right somewhere around where this would have happened. He goes up to Mount Carmel and he has this, this deal with the Baal prophets. And he says, if you guys, uh, if you guys, your Baal is God, then call down fire and have him light your, remember this? And if God is God, then I'll call down fire and he'll light our, my offering. Well, indeed, God lit his offering and not theirs. And then he stirred the people and they killed 450 Baal prophets. In a sense, the land is being cleansed. This horrible, disgusting religion, and it really is, was, was just cleansed out of there. But the queen, Jezebel, she's a Phoenician. Baal's their god, man. And, and she's just furious with him. But here's what happens right after that event. Verse 41, are you there? Verse Kings 18. Now Elijah said to Ahab, that's the king, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. What is there? What is he hearing? Is there rain? He's hearing prophetically. This is a word of knowledge. He literally, in the spirit, hears the rain. So he turns to Ahab and says, go have lunch, man. The rain's coming. So Ahab does. Somewhere around there, he just goes up to his camp and has lunch. But please notice, Elijah doesn't go have lunch. He doesn't go, hey, God's told me I heard the rain. Soon it's going to rain. I can tell it. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't just go, hey, let's all just relax. I want you to see he knows the will of God. Now, how does he react? Verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to the servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And so he went up and he looked and he said, there's nothing. And he said, go back. How many times? Seven times. Would you keep sending him back? He discerned God's will. He heard the sound of a roar of a heavy shower. Please understand, he knew God's will, but that wasn't enough. He knew his intercession was essential. He didn't go have lunch. He went up onto the mountain and laid hold of that promise. He fought for it. And notice it wasn't easy. 
You'd say, well, it was God's will. God's going to do what God's going to do. Nonsense. Stop that. This is God's will, and there's all kinds of things preventing it. There's all kinds of issues. He goes up, and I'm too old to do this. He sat down kind of, and put his head between his knees, and he just interceded, repented for the sins of Israel, called on God, believed God, laid hold of God, whatever he had to do, sitting there praying. And he looks up and he says, what do you see? And his servant says, nothing. Praise again. Go back and look. Nothing. He's wrestling. You see it? Wrestling for this thing. He's fighting for this thing. Go back seven times. Verse 44. And it came about that the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Abraham, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. All it takes for him is a little tiny cloud to know the thing has broken. He watches for the thing to break. He knows, he's, he knows it's come now. It's released. He says, go up and tell Abraham, uh, Ahab and tell him to prepare his chariot. He better get going or he's going to get stuck in the mud. So it came about in a little while that the sky grew black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy shower and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Now notice this. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins. That means you take, you're running in those robes and they'll trip you. You grab the back hem, you pull it up and you stuff it in your belt. So you've got big puffy pantaloons. But you, that's, that's it. That's what it means. You, think, what's this? you grab the back, you pull it up, stuff it in your belt, and then you can run and not trip. And he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. He didn't quit till the answer arrived. He was strengthened by the process, will you notice? Not weakened by it. He wasn't exhausted when it was over. He's anointed. You know how far it is from Carmel to Jezreel? You, when you stand on Mount Carmel, the, the Jezreel Valley is like an arrowhead. It's shaped like an arrowhead. and It goes out from you if, as you're, you're looking east. It's beautiful green farmland in this, in this valley between these, these, these rocks, hills. It's 17 miles to the city, to the little city of Jezreel in the distance. So... He's prayed this through, and he is anointed. He tells Ahab, you better go or you're going to get stuck in the mud. And then he starts running. And he runs 17 miles and outruns Ahab in his chariot because he's in the spirit. This kind of prayer doesn't make you weak. Standing in faith doesn't wear you out. It makes you strong. I love Caleb in the Old Testament where, 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 where he's 80 years old and and, and um, Joshua, who's the other man who had faith with him, says, what land do you want? You were the man of faith. And he says, give me the hill country of the Anakim. Anakim were giants. They were like nine feet tall. And he says, for I go out to war like a young man. 80 years old. Faith may feel like it's killing you, but it makes you strong. Faith is hard. And you may think you're dying, but you're not. You're actually getting stronger and stronger. It's a funny thing. It'll lead you into hard places, and you will not be broken by it. You will be strengthened by it.
Now let me show you another example. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. I just picked two. In the year, first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent. So these are Medes who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem. Namely, how many years? Say 70. 70. There you go. Good for you. I knew you knew. (laughs) All right. So Jeremiah, during the time when Babylon came in, 586... I mean, they came in a number of times, but that was the last one. And they, have take, they take out all these leaders, all the strong young men. And Daniel went, and he was taken to Babylon. And then Babylon was conquered by the Persians, so now he's in a Persian court. Jeremiah stayed. Oh, he had a rough trip with because the, <laughs> the, the Jews were hard on him. But he, he stayed there. But he had written and said, You're going to be judged. He'd said that all before it happened. And he said, and the judgment will last 70 years. Daniel is over in Persia. He's reading the prophecy. He looks at it. And I give you the number there. What is it? 2511, something like that. He's reading the thing and it says 70 years. And he looks at where they are. And he says, why? The time's almost up. We're about to be freed. It was 70 years. It's coming up. Now, notice what he does. He doesn't go, hey, everybody, we're free. We're free. It's going to happen. You know, pack your bags. What does Daniel do when he knows that he knows the will of God? Look at the next verse. Verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with what? fastings, sackcloth, and ashes. That is not a passive man. That is not a man going, okay, we're almost done. We're almost out of here, everybody. That is a man who goes, the will of God. We're almost, he wants to free us. So what does he do? Puts on sackcloth and ashes, goes into mourning and full repentance, and just begins to fight in faith to bring in the promise of God. He prepared himself to pray with prayer and fasting. I'm going to tell you what he prayed. Right? I'm not going to read it all to you. He confessed God's covenant. He said, God, you've made a covenant with us. And you'll never break your covenant with our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He confessed the nation's sins. And he included himself in the process. He didn't say, these are bad people, God. He said, we have sinned. He puts himself right in the middle of it. We have sinned. He confessed God's justice in judging them. God, you have every right to do what you did. We deserved every bit of it. He confessed God's mercy, but you are merciful, God. You will give us mercy. He called on God's compassion. You love us. He received divine revelation. I do want you to see that. Look over at verse 20. He's praying. He's repenting. He's confessing the truth about God and his his goodness to them. And in the process, this happens. Verse 20. Now, while he was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, pardon me, while I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel 
and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of God. The holy mountain of God is Mount Zion where the temple is, or was. And while I was speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, that's the archangel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering, three in the afternoon. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but he, the angel will now give him one of the most incredibly accurate, remarkable revelations in the entire Bible. He tells him exactly how long it will be till the city of Jerusalem is restored. He tells them exactly how long it will be till Messiah comes. He tells them the Messiah will die. I mean, he just nails it in this thing. It's, an, it's a remarkable prophecy. Learn this. When you start praying and interceding, when you begin to really mean it and you go for it, God will give you revelation. Prophetic insight comes with intercession. Did you follow? When you start praying for your family, you start praying for a city, you start praying for your school, you start praying for, you start praying and you will begin to get prophetic insight. It's part of the process. Isaiah, I give you the reference, it's 62. He says, he talks about watchmen on the wall. What do watchmen do? They see the danger coming. They perspective. And it says, he says, say to the watchmen, give God, God says to them, give me no rest until I make Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. In other words, pray. Pray, lay hold of me, says God. Don't let me go till I've blessed this city and made it a praise in all the earth. You hear that? When you pray, God starts showing you stuff. I have people come to me and they say, God start showing me stuff about this. What am I supposed to do with it? I don't go, duh, but I think it. No. When God's showing you things like that about people and situations, what do you think you're supposed to do with it? Very seldom go tell them. That is not what you're supposed to do with it. Guess what God showed me about you? That is not helpful. What do you do? You pray. And then when you pray, see what he's doing, what God is doing is sharpening your intercession. He's showing you what to pray. You want, the, you want that family won? You want that situation broken? You need that thing released? God's going to start showing you the spiritual root of it so you can pray on target because your prayers matter. Yes. Did you follow? Yes. He confessed God's covenant. No. Intercession often results in, in, in revelation which produces more focused intercession. All right, now, tarrying. If any of you heard the term tarrying, it's King James. It means waiting. If you read the King James Bible, the disciples tarried. That's where I get that word. These disciples were waiting for the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they, re- and they received that baptism all at once, 10 days later, 
on the day of the Feast of Pentecost. But God offers this same gift to us. Jesus continues to baptize believers into the Holy Spirit. So we too can be his witnesses. Some people argue that tarrying or waiting, like the 120 did back then, isn't needed anymore. They say, the Spirit is given to every believer when they are born again. And they're right. And they're right. But as we've seen, being given a gift and actually receiving it aren't the same thing. Did you follow it? When you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you are righteous and God gives you everything. It's yours. You've got it. But being given a gift and, be, and receiving that gift are two different matters. We, too, may need to prepare our hearts so we can actually lay hold of what God has already given us. We may need to surrender, confess sins, refuse condemnation, break old bondages, and stir up faith to take hold of what God has already given. And that can take time, as much time as we need until we're finally ready to reach out and take what God is holding in his hand. Until we know he's come to live inside. Until we too are changed like they were. In other words, for a true believer, the process of waiting is a matter of waiting for us to prepare ourselves. Not for God to give. Did you follow? We've had for years baptism in the Holy Spirit services. This, this is true. This principle is true, by the way, in all kinds of areas. But it's certainly true in, in what this very important area of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've sat with people who are trying to receive the baptism, and I've asked in, I, it's, I, various things. But I, I can remember asking, have you surrendered to the Lord? Are you willing to do? The answer was, no, I'm not going to surrender to him. But I... And I said, but you still want the baptism of the Spirit? Yeah. I, th I, thought, I said, well, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm not sure you're saved. You know? <laughs> I did come up with a way. Um, listen, people will want things. But there's all sorts of stuff still carrying around in the heart. Tarrying, waiting on God. When you, when you come to Christ... God wants, has, give, has given you everything. But receiving it is another matter altogether. I've seen issues of demonic bondage. I don't know how to entirely explain it, but I've seen... I'm not saying people are possessed. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I don't believe that. But I have seen people where you could literally see the demonic thing go, and then they received the baptism of the Spirit. I have seen people very often with false doctrine. People will say, I want the Holy Spirit. And then when you actually get in the environment, when, when the Lord starts moving, you'll watch them freeze because they were raised as a child to be told this is demonic. These things are not of God. And so they're sure they're getting a demon. And they lock up. You'd be amazed. I mean, a lot of people don't talk about the Holy Spirit at all, but they sure will make sure you know that this is all demonic. They plant that seed in children. It's just sick. 
So you got a lot of people who have to deal with that. Do you see it in the word? You have to process through to you get through that fear that this is somehow demonic. What a, what a tragic thing. Shame. You'll watch people, and as the Lord comes, they'll begin to weep, and they say, I don't deserve this, I don't deserve this, I don't deserve this. And you want to say, of course you don't. No one ever thought you did. Did you think you did? You know? She thought she did. No. I'm just making light of it. It's really quite painful. There's people just under this tremendous shame, this tremendous bondage, you know, and you have to go, wait a minute, it's all Christ. You don't, none of us deserve anything. You must lay hold of his righteousness. Completely abandon your own. You know, so there's a heart problem. You see what's going on here? This isn't God not giving you something. This is us processing in our hearts, getting the junk, getting this. What does Isaiah say? Lift the valleys up, bring the mountains down, make the rough places smooth, make the narrow places a broad plain. Clear the way for the Lord so the glory of the Lord can come in. It's a cleansing, a clearing process that goes on in the heart. That's what tearing is about. Bitterness. I've watched people. I've watched people where, I've, where they want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they refuse to forgive someone, and they don't get it. I've watched people forgive someone and get it. Anger at God. See, when you start getting close to the Lord, I mean, really? You just, it comes out of the cerebral and into the experience? Oh, the stuff that's really going on and it's hidden below the surface, it all starts to bubble up. There's people who are angry at God. Their wife died. Why, did he, why didn't he heal my wife? You know, stuff comes out. Wounds come out. Issues come out. Fears come out. Fear of tongues. Some people go, I don't want to do that. I, did, I was one of those. <laughs> I do relate to you. Doubts. Here's the point, people. God wants to do a work. And many of us have been hung up. We've been passive. We've come, taken this approach that says, hey, he knows my address. If he wants me to have some of these things, I'll have them. And of course, it isn't working, and you can go 20, 30 years, and nothing's happened, has it? And nothing will. And nothing will. At some point, you, you and I must not be passive. You must want all that God has. And you must not be satisfied with anything less. You must say, I will not be denied. I will have my full blessing. Whatever has to get plucked out of the heart, whatever's got to go on in me, do it. We will, I will co cooperate. But I want it all. And if we don't do that, we can go through this generation with nothing. More than a good church. Don't we want the move of God. The move of God is nothing more than, the, than the, the broad outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we need it over and over again too, don't we? It's not like you get it once and you're, you're, just a, you're just a fireball the rest of your life. There's a, there's a constant refilling. Some of us have had it and we're dry, we're cold, we're old in, in our spirit. And we need fresh moving of God. We need to touch him again. We need to hear him again. We need this thing coming into our lives again. And we mustn't be willing to be denied. 
There's got to be a contention. And you have to do it for yourself. We can, do, we can work together, but no one can do this for you. And I can't emotionalize you or coach you or cajole you until you go, oh, I think I'll... You've got to want it. I've got to want it. I was on my knees in, it was in that worship service. That was a great worship service, by the way. Thank you so much. I was on my knees saying that to God just before this service. Whatever you have to do, I get it. I do understand. I'm a bit uptight. You know, I may talk like this, but I mean, there's a side of me that's chicken too. And, and I think, God, whatever you got to do, whatever's got to go, I don't know, but I, I, I won't be denied. I have to have it all. It's all of us. They came together with one accord. They gave strong attention to. They focused. And they prayed. They talked to him and they poured their hearts out. And they waited in faith. And they received their blessing big time. God will do that in our generation. He'll do it, He'll do it for us. And it will change the world. You can't light this kind of fire and not have it change the world. But we have to do what they did. We have to do just what they did. Would you stand with me? Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Lord, we think of that promise you made. You said... Blessed are those who, are, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. God, we ask you to put that hunger, put that thirst in us. We long for you, God. Where if we've grown complacent, if we've grown discouraged, if we've just decided we're old and it doesn't matter anymore, God have mercy on us. Free us from that junk. If we've decided we're too young, And this isn't for us. This is for old people. God, free us from that. We want all that you have. Jesus, you're wonderful. You're alive and strong. You want want us full of the Holy Spirit. That we might be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And Lord, how the world needs it. Please come. Please come, put a hunger in us, put a thirst in us, put a passion in us. Lord, we say to you, we will not be denied. We will not let you pass us by without a blessing. We will not, like Jacob, we're going to wrestle you till the morning. Lord God, we are determined to have all that you have. As we open your word, as we look at it, as we study it, we seek to obey it and to follow you step by step, to prepare the way of the Lord that the glory of the Lord might come, that the glory of the Lord might come in us and in us as a people. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and have your way. Come and stir us up. Come, Lord, and teach us to wait as a people, to wait with that same passion, to wait with that same focus, that same commitment, to wait on God until you have your full way in us and your spirits poured out and lives are changed, and we're changed. We ask for that. We believe for that. We confess you indeed will do that. Great is the Lord who's among us. Great is the Lord who's among us. We confess it, our Father. 
we confess it. Would you say this after me? Lord Jesus, I will not be denied. I want everything. I will do what it takes. Whatever needs to go, goes. Whatever needs to get changed will get changed. I want all, all the Holy Spirit. I want all the power of God at work in my life. I choose to love my brothers and sisters. I choose to wait in faith. I choose to pray until you come and do a mighty work. In Jesus' name, I declare it. Now, if you really mean that, and, and I'm telling you, I'm in. If you're in for this thing, would you say amen? amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.